Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. As I mentioned last week, Counterpunch Plus has launched. Excited about this new subscriber section. Lots of great content in there. All of the columns from the print magazine are now available in Counterpunch Plus, but there's also additional content, really interesting stories, investigative pieces covering a wide variety of topics. I will say, of course, my piece, which I'll be talking about today, the plot against Libya, that is on Counterpunch Plus. That Counterpunch Plus is now available free to everybody for a limited time. Go check it out. See what it's going to be like, and eventually it's going to be only for those people who are subscribing to counterpunch you can do that through the website get the annual subscription it's the best value i believe you can also break it down into a monthly payment but do what you need to do get on counterpunch get a subscription become a supporter have access to counterpunch plus right now there's all this great written stuff i can expect in the not too distant future additional podcasts from me maybe extra time on some of the episodes video might possibly be available who knows i'm not sure i'm throwing it out there i'm not committing to anything because i'm not the one doing the work but the great people over at counterpunch in uh you know in the office there in california up in the satellite office in oregon up in the other satellite office somewhere in outer space is our fail safe plan all of these people are working very very hard to keep counterpunch going counterpunch plus giving you all of that content so I don't know how else to say it. Please do support us. Counterpunch is really important, particularly now, because who the hell knows what's going to happen in the coming months. So uh, please consider that. You can also find a lot more work from me, including video commentaries, audio commentaries, written articles, and more on my Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Eric Gratzer. So um, with that said, I want to talk to you today about a couple of pieces that are featured in Counterpunch Plus. No guest for this week. We'll be right back to having a, a, our normal guest in interview format for next week. But I want to just kind of riff with you for a few minutes here about some of these important pieces, including my own. So uh, if you like the dulcet sounds, the dulcet tones of my voice, then please do strap yourself in. If you don't, Strap yourself in anyway. I think the strapping is really the key here. So um, please do go to Counterpunch Plus. Check out the articles there. My article, The Plot Against Libya, is there. You can read it. Let's talk about it because the war against Libya, the U.S. war against Libya in 2011 is of a of monumental importance. It has been almost completely erased from our collective memory, uh, partially because of the uh, Arab Spring and the conflict in Syria, partially because of the mental fog that is Donald Trump. But we really do need to look back on the war in Libya now that it has been nine years uh, since the United States and the British and the French destroyed that country. Uh, my article is available in Counterpunch Plus. It was uh, published a couple of weeks ago, The Plot Against Libya and Obama-Biden-Clinton criminal conspiracy. And that is what it is. Let's just begin right there. It was a criminal conspiracy. This was a war waged uh, in blatant violation of U.S. law, the Constitution, but also international law. And uh, it really does, I think, instruct us in our understanding of what an imperial presidency means, of what a lawless executive 
means because all of that we see in spades with Donald Trump and his uh, you know capo there William Barr um, we see this over and over again literally every day Trump reaches new levels of criminality and you know the liberal corporate media is of course aghast at each new transgression by Trump how can it be how can the sitting president be openly defying of the rule of law and all of these type of things and that's true uh, Trump is a fascist. Trump is dangerous, probably the most dangerous man and certainly the most dangerous man in the world today, possibly the most dangerous man in the world in, in decades. Uh, maybe if you want to if you want to really broaden it on the ecological level, maybe one of the most dangerous people in history, as certainly as Noam Chomsky has said. But leaving that aside, um, I think we have to keep in mind, though, that every maneuver by Barr and Trump that is clearly illegal Every one of them is building upon many of the uh, maneuvers and crimes and so forth that were committed by Obama and Biden and Clinton and all of the rest of them. That is a fundamental fact that has to be understood. This is not to make an equivalence. This is not to say that don't vote for Biden or, uh, you know, support Trump or, you know, you got to vote for a third party. Or I'm not saying any of that. You do what you think is right, what you think is the right thing to do. I have my opinion. Others have their opinions. We will all do what we think is appropriate. The left doesn't need to self-aggrandize by thinking that it's going to be the kingmaker in all of this. Let's do what we need to do and make the right decisions. But in doing so, we have to be realistic and understand how we got here. Because if we don't understand how we got here, we're never going to understand where this is all going to go, especially especially if Biden somehow manages to uh, not only win the election, but actually assume the presidency, neither of those being at all foregone conclusions. So we need to understand what a Biden presidency would look like. And in doing so, we need to understand what the Obama presidency was, because it's all the same people, all the same actors. So let's get into it. I'm not going to go through point by point everything in this article. Please do go and read it. Uh, I hope you like it. I, I, I worked hard on it. But um, let's just talk a little bit about some of the specific points here. First of all, the conspiracy. This was a conspiracy. This was not some kind of uh, simply a, you know, an uprising that led to a civil war that led to the deposing of the government. There was a conspiracy involved in manufacturing not only the political side of the uprising, but in manufacturing the actual uh, prosecution of the war itself. So part of this conspiracy really begins with Bernard-Henri Lévy. Now, Bernard-Henri Lévy, for those who don't know, BHL, as he's often known, um, he is, well, in theory, a journalist slash philosopher slash public intellectual slash media figure in France. Very, very well connected to ruling circles, to the political elite in that country. And Bernard-Henri Lévy shows up in Egypt too late for the uh, uprising Tahrir Square and the and the overthrow of the Mubarak government. He was too late for that. But what he wasn't too late for was the new uprising taking place in Libya. These are the early days. Well, this is the end of 2010 and into the beginning of 2011, the very, very earliest days of what we would come to know as the Arab Spring. And so now in Benghazi, you have this uprising. Uh, BHL hears about it. 
He then, after having left Egypt, gone back to France, now comes back to Egypt and gets in a car, and hires a car rather, and gets himself into Libya and to eventually to Benghazi. Anyway, to make a long story short, BHL ultimately makes contact with uh, the head of the head of what would become the National Transitional Council, uh, which would ultimately then become the quote unquote legitimate recognized government as far as Western capitals were concerned. And uh, so anyway, so he meets there with um, you know the heads of the TNC, including the head uh, Mustafa Abdel Jalil. Abdel Jalil becomes a major power broker in Libya after this, but at the time he is one of the point people. He is a former member of the government who really had become uh, one of the leading figures of the anti-Gaddafi political opposition to the extent that it existed. Uh, so what happens next is that BHL basically takes uh, Abdel Jalil and the TNC heads to France with him, and he gets a meeting with Sarkozy. Okay, Sarkozy at the time is the president of France. Sarkozy had, and, and we now know, intimate dealings with Gaddafi and in fact had Gaddafi's funds that had backed him. And one of the motivations that is speculated for Sarkozy in all of this to be as, as aggressive and belligerent as he was, was in attempting to conceal to whatever extent he could some of those connections. But that's a side issue. So uh, uh, Sarkozy meets with the TNC head with Abdel Jalil, BHL, Bernard-Henri Lévy is there. And at that meeting, Sarkozy absolutely blows away the Libyans by telling them that he's planning on recognizing them as the legitimate government of Libya, right? Something that they did not expect. So in fact, in this moment, Despite the fact that there's a war going in Libya, despite the fact that the Gaddafi forces are absolutely winning in that war and would likely potentially see victory, at that moment, they have effectively deposed the Gaddafi government. And now you have a crisis, a political crisis, wherein the French government does not recognize the official government in Libya and has now essentially manufactured a government. But that's not where this ends, because Bernard-Henri Lévy has yet another very important thing to do. He now has to then go and set up the meeting between the head of the TNC and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And it is that meeting where Hillary Clinton is really first introduced to the TNC that she begins her long ascent towards the belligerent position that she would take in deposing Gaddafi and, of course, ultimately and infamously laughing about his brutal assassination. Uh, so Henri Lévy sets up this meeting. Henri Lévy brings the Libyans to Clinton. Clinton then takes that message back to Obama and Biden and the rest of them. And then we should probably, uh, from, from that point, we should say Bernard-Henri Lévy continues turning up the pressure to the extent he can. He wants Sarkozy to have a full-blown military intervention. And the way that this is going to happen is by using public relations within France and French domestic political concerns to force Sarkozy into an intervention in Libya. And this had to do with the prospect of uh, French citizens and French property, well, French citizens dying, French property being destroyed, and generally a sort of a humiliation for France as the brutal dictator Gaddafi reasserts his control and France stands powerless against it, right? Stoking this sort of 
patriotic fervor in France. That's what happens. Sarkozy caves in. Sarkozy pushes for military intervention of some kind, no-fly zone, and the rest of it. Hillary Clinton pretty much follows a similar trajectory. She uh, moves from being somewhat skeptical to becoming an ardent supporter. And this really comes back to some of her advisors, including people like Derek Cholet, uh, who go to her and basically tell her, look, Libya is a quote-unquote a slam dunk, meaning this is an easy political victory. Gaddafi will fall quickly. Our people will take over, and then we can say, hey, look, we did regime change that the Bush and the Republicans can't get done. We can do the imperialism that they can't. We can get it done where they can't, right? This is the kind of disgusting uh, liberal logic that really pervades the Clinton world, and that's really what was driving a lot of this. So anyway... I don't want to dwell too long on all of that, but we should talk a little bit about the divisions within the Obama administration, because according to Joe Becker of the New York Times, who documented all of this, and I believe wrote a book about it, uh, she basically says that it was it was Clinton and Biden, although they waffled a little bit in the beginning, Clinton and Biden ultimately became the uh, aggressive hawks on the Libya issue. And it was uh, former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates who actually was a bit more skeptical. Gates was the one who I guess cautioned that if they were to move forward with this, that it could potentially turn into a disaster, a failed state, civil war, all of these possible outcomes. He warned them about it. They did it anyway. That's exactly what happened. This is not to say that Gates is any kind of a dove. He himself is a war criminal, but he at least had the uh, uh, sort of strategic understanding to know what was going to happen here. So Anyway, uh, the Libyans the Libyans meet with uh, with, with uh, Clinton. Clinton then brings it back to Washington. Despite the divisions, the Obama administration plans to move forward. But now here comes the second piece of all of this, and where we really ought to talk about the the criminality piece. The Obama administration did something so blatantly criminal and so blatantly unconstitutional, and yet. Nobody, no liberals batted an eye when it came to Libya, and that was waging a war without going through the congressional appropriations process, the budget process. And what does that mean? Well, in the United States, if you want to prosecute a war, you have to have the war funded, and the funding has to be appropriations. In other words, a specifically defined amount that is appropriated by Congress uh, to the Pentagon to prosecute, you know, to, to the Department of Defense to prosecute the war. That involves itemizing, you know, the objectives and what, what needs to be done and what's going to cost what and so forth. There's a process. Now, we could talk about whether or not that really matters all that much, that the appropriations process is a rubber stamp and this and that. I don't know if that's entirely true, but there's there's some merit to the question about whether even that process matters. But the Obama administration didn't even go that route. They didn't even pay lip service to the Constitution and to the rule of law, uh, you know, the law of the land. No. Instead, the Obama administration did this, quote unquote, off the books. They did this. They, they prosecuted this war without doing any congressional appropriation at all. In other words, what they did was they used already appropriated Pentagon funds to carry out this war. OK, now think about what that means. That means you cannot do any accounting. You can, there's no paper trail. You can't say how many bombs, how many this, how many that. All you have is to take the Pentagon's word for it. Can you, can you, can you close your eyes and picture the danger here? 
about what that kind of unchecked executive authority means, not just in the hands of somebody like Barack Obama, but what it means in the hands of somebody like Donald Trump. When Trump does this, the liberals scream outrage, as they should. Trump's a fascist and a criminal and deserves to be in prison immediately for the sake of everybody. But that's beside the point. Trump is carrying out his criminal actions as the criminal uh, degenerate that he is, using many of the same principles that Obama used. That's the key in all of this. Nobody's saying that Republicans and Democrats are exactly the same. Nobody's saying that Trump is equally, you know, that Obama is just as bad as Trump. What we're trying to get across is the continuity, how this works, how the system operates, and how one feeds off of the other and builds on the other. You know, the famous statement, you know, that, that uh, you know, great great people, you know, stand on the shoulders of giants, or I guess that's an Einstein quote, uh, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants. I mean, every president stands on the shoulders of the degenerate scumbag who came before him, the criminal who came before him and who laid it out for them. This is building one after the next after the next, the construction of the imperial presidency. That's what we're talking about here. And when it is in the hands of somebody like Trump, it's only that much more vicious, only that much more cruel, and only that much more criminal. So uh, without having done any appropriations, we can't account for what happened in the war. We don't know exactly anything other than to say that the war was a, quote, cheap little war, which is really how the Obama people like to talk about it, that this war didn't really cost anything. Okay, well, that's not true. Yeah, it didn't cost any American lives, but it definitely cost uh, resources. It definitely cost money, and it cost a lot in the form of the rule of law. It cost a lot in the form of the legacy. It cost a lot in the form of what the Constitution is supposed to represent. But you know, without getting into the without getting into all of the abstractions and everything else, we have to keep in mind that the you know when we talk about Afghanistan, when we talk about Iraq, when we talk about these monumental scale war crimes, what we're really talking about are war crimes that were congressionally approved and appropriated legally. So they're war crimes, no doubt. But at the very least, they at least paid lip service to the Constitution. Okay, the Libya war didn't even do that. Obama didn't even do that. And so, listen, that is significant, and we should not downplay at all what that really means for you know, for the country, for the future, and uh, what that means now that we have a kind of politics that has turned so hard to the fascist right. Uh, all right, I don't want to go too long here, but I got to talk a little bit about the dirty war against Libya because it was a dirty war and we shouldn't we shouldn't make any mistake about it the war was not prosecuted exclusively by the British and the French and and the United States this was not purely a NATO war NATO provided the air support NATO enforced the no fly zone all of which were criminal actions by the way but leaving that aside NATO did those things but on the ground fighting was carried out by armed uh you know elements armed armed extremists oftentimes terrorists oftentimes not always but often and uh many of those were deeply connected to international terrorism actually some of the most effective ones were connected to international terrorism so yet again we see just as we saw in the 1980s in afghanistan just as we've seen elsewhere uh kosovo comes to mind but not 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 only kosovo um you know we've seen the united states engage uh, terrorist elements as proxies in broader political conflicts. This is this has been true for you know going back to the Carter administration. We remember Zbigniew Brzezinski bragging about essentially creating 
the Mujahideen, right? So which spawned Al Qaeda and Al Qaeda is a good uh, touchstone here because one of the primary groups that was involved on the ground was the Libyan Islamic fighting group. Now, Although many people like to sort of relegate all of this to the realm of oh, conspiracy theory, what is this conspiracy theorist talking about the United States working with terrorists, working with Al Qaeda? Come on. Well, listen, listen, 2011, the New York Times, I'll quote it, quote, the Libyan Islamic fighting group was formed in 1995 with the goal of ousting Colonel Gaddafi, driven into the mountains or exile by Libyan security forces. The group's members were the first to join the fight against Gaddafi's security forces. Okay, now, what do we know about them? Well, if we look carefully at some of the writing, quote, American, European, and Arab intelligence services acknowledge that they are worried about the influence that the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group's members might exert over Libya after Colonel Gaddafi is gone, and they are trying to assess their influence and any lingering links to Al-Qaeda, end quote. In other words, the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group was allied with Al-Qaeda, and they were throughout the war in Iraq, and I'm going to get to that in a second, and they were at least up until the time, uh, you know, at, at some point in the in the late 2000s, early, you know, maybe 2010. So here we are, early 2011, and you're talking about a group at the forefront of the fight against Gaddafi. Are they Al-Qaeda? Are they linked to Al-Qaeda? Have they broken links to Al-Qaeda? Who could really ever say? The reality is this is an Al-Qaeda group. This is an Al-Qaeda group, a group that worked with Al-Qaeda, that's part of the Al-Qaeda networks, whether it's formal or informal, whether it's official or unofficial, whether it's Al-Qaeda or Al-Qaeda adjacent. Let's let's be serious. Okay, this is an extremist, uh, uh, an Islamic extremist terror group, or maybe terror is not even the right word because the war on terror has so polluted that terminology that we probably shouldn't even use it. Probably better to say, uh, you know, an Islamic extremist criminal gang that's probably a better description of what they what they are and what they were and they were led by this guy Abu Abdullah Salik also known as Abdel Hakim Belhaj you might remember Belhaj's name because he sued the British government for the rendition program remember he was a, he was a victim of the rendition program too so there's this bizarre twist where you know US and, and and European imperialism kind of twists on itself and victimizes the same people that it uses and uses the people that it victimizes and so forth. So anyway, uh, that's one. Now another thing that we have to keep in mind is the and I just mentioned it, the connection with Al Qaeda because Libya and particularly the 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 triangle uh, between Derna, Tobruk, and Benghazi, which is very, very often discussed for other reasons, but that triangle produced the highest concentration of terrorists that went to Iraq to fight against the U.S. occupation there. So when the U.S. was fighting against, quote unquote, the, you know, the war on terror in Iraq, many of those fighters were coming from Libya and specifically from that triangle. And we know this because the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, the, com the Combating Terrorism Center, had a full report in 2007 called uh, the Sinjar Records, the Sinjar Records, or rather the report was called Al-Qaeda's Foreign Fighters in Iraq, a first look at the Sinjar Records, okay? And when you read through that, it shows you that there were, that the two cities, the two cities that had the highest concentration of fighters uh, going to Iraq were Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and Derna, Libya. 
Of course, Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia, has four and a half million people. Derna has 80,000 people. And yet they sent the same number to Iraq. So in other words, Derna was by far the highest concentration of terrorists. Now, when you think about that, and then when you fast forward just a couple of years, what you find is that the U.S. is now recruiting from that very same pool of, uh, of international criminal talent. Okay, so now you get a picture of what the U.S. is really doing here. Listen, you could listen to all these policy wonks and, and, and Pentagon scum and whomever talk about how, well, they don't support terrorism and they work with local opposition and this or that. Know exactly who they're talking about. Okay, that's really important here. And this is not conspiracy. Read the Army report yourself and, and, and come to your own conclusions. So uh, again, um, the, the CIA facility in Benghazi is another aspect of the Libya story. I don't want to go too far into that conversation, but just to note again, the connection with international terrorism, because that CIA facility that they so often referred to as a diplomatic facility, that was actually guarded by members of the February 17th Martyrs Brigade which was very clearly connected to many of these same terrorist elements. So in fact, what you find is that it's the same pool of talent <laughs> producing all these different groups that the U.S. was trying to use against Gaddafi. Okay, so this is one of the critical aspects of this story. And this is not, again, I could cite you New York Times articles, Washington Post articles, et cetera. This isn't fringe stuff. This was actually surprisingly really well reported uh, back then. Uh, now it has, of course, disappeared down the memory hole. Last one I want to talk about in terms of the uh, proxies, the U.S. proxies, and that's Khalifa Hifter. He's probably the most important today because Hifter is still very much involved on the ground. He leads what's called the Libyan National Army. Uh, and just to fast forward very briefly to today, the Libyan National Army is backed by the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Russia in, uh, particularly, um, as opposed to the government in Tripoli, which is backed by uh, the Turks in, especially, so, uh, and Qatar. So uh, Hifter was, is, is really the Libya point man for the United States, and he has been for years and years and years. This goes back to the 1980s, the attempt to, by the Reagan administration to overthrow Gaddafi, which failed. Hifter was brought to the U.S. to live uh, you know, in close proximity to his good buddies in Langley, Virginia, the CIA. And uh, he was also part of the attempt to overthrow Gaddafi in 1996, which failed. So in 2011, when the uprising is beginning, here comes Hifter coming into Libya. And all of a sudden, he coalesces a lot of forces around him, reestablishes the Libyan National Army. And when I say Libyan National Army, that's the name they apply to Hifter's forces. That is not actually the army of the country of Libya. That's something different. Uh, so anyway, Hifter is there. He continues to be there. He has made many pushes towards Tripoli. But when the Turks got involved, he has been pushed back very significantly. But at the time, Hifter was the CIA man. Hifter has long been the CIA man. The question is, does he still a CIA man. It seems that he's probably not. It seems that he's most likely now some kind of a rogue operator who has made deals with all these other governments as he seems to have distanced himself from the U.S., which has been more or less not involved in Libya under the Trump administration, uh, which is, well, I think, I think 
some naive people might say, well, that's a great thing. I, I, I think it's debatable if you think about what the situation in Libya currently is. Not to say that U.S. involvement makes it better, but the situation is, is dire to begin with in Libya right now. So anyway, that's also tangential. Let's not go too far into that direction. So a dirty war in Libya, utilizing terror networks and criminal gangs, arming them, helping them to overthrow the Gaddafi government. How does that sound so familiar? We all know the long history of this. We know how the U.S. will manipulate real grassroots movements, actual uprisings, as we've seen in other countries, other parts of the world, including even in Syria uh, at, the, at the very same time. At the same time, we can't be naive about the reality of what happened. And we have to be clear about the historical record because that's what brings us to the conclusion here. This war is forgotten. It's only been nine years and we don't even talk about it. We act as if Obama left the Oval Office having never started wars. Obama started numerous wars and Libya is probably the most damaging of all because, uh, you know, unlike Yemen, where Obama provided tacit support, Obama's administration was directly involved in the destruction of Libya. Without Obama and the Obama administration, there would have been no war on Libya. Sarkozy couldn't wage war without the U.S. David Cameron and the British weren't going to do a damn thing if there wasn't Obama behind him. So Obama is very much responsible for this. And let's just talk briefly about what this means in terms of the broader politics today. We have Black Lives Matter. We have the, the, the fight against white supremacy. We should understand Libya and the war in Libya as also a war of white supremacy. Libya was home to many, many tens of thousands of sub-Saharan African migrant workers who went to Libya because they not only had an economic future in terms of work and salaries and you know uh, wages that they could send back to their families throughout the continent, but also because the Gaddafi government provided legal protections for Africans. They made sure that uh, whatever forms of institutionalized discrimination existed, that, that the state forcibly suppressed them, forcibly suppressed a lot of the racist actions, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the genocidal impulses that we've seen since the overthrow of the Gaddafi government. Remember that in southern Libya, uh, particularly among people like the Tawerga people, we saw attempts to completely wipe them out by some of the Arab Libyans. And so these, these kind of internal social and cultural and, and uh, uh, linguistic divisions are also part of this broader picture that we have to understand. And so black Libyans and, and black Africans in Libya were very, very much a part of this story, though, of course, now they're completely forgotten. What do we know about black bodies in Libya today? Slavery, slave auctions, slave markets. Um, you know, I begin the article uh, describing, uh, you know, a slave market or a slave warehouse, essentially, in Bani Walid. I didn't make it up. I pulled that right out of the descriptions of people who have reported on it directly from being on the ground there. Okay, so we're talking about the kind of uh, uh, anti-blackness that is so, um, so much a product of colonialism that we have to understand the Libya war as a colonial war. That we have to understand Libya as a neo-colonial reassertion of, of you know, uh, the hegemony of the former colonial powers. The French, of course, the British, of course, the United States, obviously, you know, as part of this broader project, not just to, a to, to, to get rid of Gaddafi and to get an easy political victory, but also to counter the Chinese 
in Africa to extend U.S. Uh, you know authority over West Africa, over the Sahel region, etc. Counterterrorism. All of these things are sort of side effects of these broader objectives. And to come back to this issue of anti-blackness, we talk about Black Lives Matter now. Well, guess what? Black Libyan lives absolutely matter. Black Libyan bodies buried in the sands of the desert matter. Those black communities that were exterminated or, or attempted to be that, that uh, you know, elements attempted to exterminate, they matter. And so when we're talking about all of these issues today, we can't forget how they connect to imperialism, how they connect to U.S. foreign policy, what the United States did in Libya and what its proxies did in Libya is really simply an extension of what the police do to black people here at home. Anti-blackness and white supremacy runs in the very DNA of the United States and of the imperial system. And Libya is a perfect example of that. So if you like, if you want to read more about all of this, please do go to Counterpunch Plus. My article, The Plot Against Libya, is there September 8, 2020. But it's not the only thing up on Counterpunch Plus. I have a couple of other uh, points that I just want to bring home to you. Great article from Naomi Lachance, just published the other day, Biden's foreign policy advisors show loyalty to Israel defense contractors. Really important. I'm hoping Naomi can come on the show and we can talk about this in detail maybe next week. Uh, but we we published this piece to talk a little bit about what a Biden administration might look like and what their foreign policy might look like. Yes, of course, we all understand that we don't even know if we'll get to a Biden administration, even if he does win the election. We understand all of the things that are at play with Trump and the possibility of a constitutional crisis and all of that. But it would be utterly irresponsible for us to not talk about what a Biden administration would potentially look like, if for no other reason, because we have this horrendous experience of the Obama administration. So uh, Naomi does an excellent job of going through some of the key players like Michelle Flournoy, who is one of the uh, leading candidates to be Biden's Secretary of Defense. She is the founder of the Center for a New American Security, the liberal uh, sort of left of center think tank, uh, very much a part of the imperial uh, consensus from the, yeah, I guess you could say from the left. Uh, this is where a lot of the Obama administration you know, talent came from, people like Flournoy and others. Uh, but she's not the only one. Uh, I, um, let me see if I have my notes here. Uh, of course, I don't have them in front of me, but uh, former former deputy director of the CIA is involved, for, uh, actually numerous former deputy directors of the CIA, those who wrote the legal framework to justify torture, those who wrote, the, uh, rather, excuse me, those who wrote the legal framework to justify drone assassinations by the Obama administration, those who attempted to suppress the Senate Intelligence Committee's report on torture taking place in Iraq and elsewhere. I mean, you're talking about uh, uh, liberal imperial uh, apparatchiks who represent all the worst aspects of not just Obama's foreign policy, but the foreign policy of every Democratic administration for the last, I don't know, 40 years at least. Uh, so these are, you know, these are these are war criminals and war criminals in waiting. Uh, so and and of course also it's deep. They're deeply connected to Israel and to Israeli lobbyists and to APAC. Um, 
you got to run run through the list, including including people like uh, Dan Shapiro, who famously was part of the Democratic National Committee's uh, attempt to kill the resolution to tie U.S. aid to uh, abuses against Palestinians and to prevent the U.S. from providing military aid to Israel when it abuses human rights, uh, which it does every minute of every day. So um, anyway, do check out Naomi's piece there. We may have Naomi on the on the show next week. I'm not sure. Another great piece on Counterpunch Plus, the CIA book publishing operations. This is a great piece from David Price, who goes through a lot of really interesting history, some of which we know, specifically, you know, uh, books like the Cultural Code, Cold War, and others, which talk about how the CIA financed art arts and literary magazines and book publishers and so forth as part of this broad soft power strategy during the Cold War to basically peddle any anti-communist uh, you know, works of literature, art, music, etc. Um, this is not to say that, uh, you know, ev- that, that every, were every artist and every writer was involved, but the main publishers at these companies certainly were. David goes through a lot of this history and he goes through some of his own research, uh, which he derived from some of the manuscripts of uh, an academic who, although he never published it, actually was working on a comprehensive book all about the CIA's book publishing operations. So do go in there, read a little bit from David Price all about uh, Saul Chanel's Lost Manuscript. I highly recommend that piece as well. And now I would also just like to note Collateral Murder by Joanne Wypyshevsky. Uh Joanne goes through an excellent, well, I don't want to say excellent because it's really sad and tragic, but she provides an excellent account of this really tragic story of, um, well, of war crimes, really, of a guy named Danny Holmes, former soldier who killed himself uh, ostensibly because of uh, post-traumatic stress that was, uh, you know, inflicted on him from his time in Iraq. Um, but really it goes into Assange and uh, uh, Chelsea Manning, and not really so much Chelsea Manning, but the video, the famous infamous video, you know, of the Apache, the, the U.S. Apache helicopters murdering, you know, uh, more than a dozen innocent civilians and so forth. So uh, Joanne goes through this really, really heartrending story of uh, Danny and talking a lot about these war crimes and 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 how he murdered a three-year-old girl and what it means to live with those kinds of crimes and what it means to then inflict pain and, and, and abuse on those around you as a result of this. And, you know, again, we one of the things we look at in Counterpunch is not just war from a political perspective, but but war from a human perspective. That's something that we always try to keep in mind. That's what it means to be anti-war. A lot of people in the U.S. like to call themselves anti-war, but don't really give the full picture of what war is read joanne's piece in counterpunch plus you'll get a real good sense of what war is all about and what war crimes are committed in the name of the american people it's it's beyond words really um so joanne is of course uh really you know well well known counterpuncher longtime counterpuncher longtime friend of our uh late great editor Alexander Coburn. Do check out that article. And just the last thing I want to mention about Counterpunch Plus is I'm trying to, you know, really push everybody to get this subscription. You have all of your columns, all of the columns in the magazine, in in, in uh, the former print magazine are now available there. Of course, most, most popular, Jeffrey Sinclair, his column, um, 
you know, roaming charges, pressure drops. I think is I think he's calling it now. Pressure drops uh, from Jeffrey is a must read every week. You've got to read Jeff's stuff. Sometimes he collects his musings from social media. Sometimes he pulls it right directly out of his ass. Whatever he does, but Jeff is always entertaining. One of the one of the best writers on the left and one of the best people. So do check out uh, his column. Chris Floyd's Empire Burlesque is always a good read as well. Um, and Pete Dolak and Jennifer Matsui and Laura Carlson's Laura Carlson's writings from the border from Mexico absolutely critical. Uh, Daniel Reventos and Julie Warks, Eurozone notes, really great insights into what's going on in Europe since we're so uh, US centric, uh, not, not not just a counterpunch, but just in general, the US left because of Trump and everything. We forget that there's a whole world out there. Um, and uh, we also have great book reviews and movie reviews. I, I just want to highlight a couple. My friend Doug Green, his excellent book review uh, of the of the new work from Ian Scott Horst, like Ho Chi Minh, like Che Guevara, The Revolutionary Left in Ethiopia, an excellent book from Ian. Um, and uh, Doug's review is, is really, really important. Remembering the Martyred Revolution. Do check that out as well. Uh, there's a lot more there. You should check out all the columns, all the different contributions there. And of course, as I said at the beginning of the, of the episode today, uh, there's going to be a lot more coming. Counterpunch Plus is really the way to go if you want to support Counterpunch. There's, of course, merchandise. There's other ways to support Counterpunch. But really being a, a supporter, a subscriber, engage with the content, engage with us. You can reach any of us by Twitter, email, all the different ways that you can do that. Um, I got to tell you truthfully, although although I produce the podcast and although you know I, I I have access to it, I'm also a subscriber. I also give uh, the donation because I really Counterpunch has meant a lot to me for a long, long time since way before I was doing any kind of punditry, before there was any podcast, before there were podcasts, before there were iPods. I was listening to uh, and, and rather reading Counterpunch. So uh, Counterpunch means a lot to me personally. I'm always thrilled to be part of it, and I hope it means a lot to you guys, and I hope you'll consider supporting Counterpunch Plus. And, of course, continuing to support Counterpunch Radio. We'll be back next week. Uh, I'll have an excellent guest to talk a lot about a bunch of different stuff. In the meantime, go to Counterpunch. Enjoy it. We'll talk again real soon.